Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. When we feel our body is too big, we can ourselves out of the pleasure of moving it. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle where we think that we're too embarrassed to get out in our walking gear and our sports gear. We think we can't run as fast as everyone else or we're embarrassed to be at the pool. Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we're joined by Claire Bowditch, a musician and actress who has now released her memoir, Your Own Kind of Girl, a book that explores the stories we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them. In this episode, we talk about what it's like to lose a sister, be sent to a diet doctor when you're still in primary school, and accept yourself when the world tells you you shouldn't. A bit of a trigger warning on this one too. This episode discusses eating disorders in a manner that may be triggering for some listeners. Here's Claire. Claire, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are bubbling with excitement over here to have you on. I'm like a kombucha ready to pop, ladies. (laughs) I mean, I have been over-fermenting on this for so long. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we jump in, was it true, I read in one part of your book that your mum was brewing her own kombucha? She was, but this is, I'm telling you, it's like 1988. And it was actually this massive scoby that just looked like a huge placenta that sort of sat behind this door in the dark in the living room. We were all like... She is the craziest Catholic we've ever, you know. My mum was this sort of progressive Bohemian Catholic, and she had she did everything that was, you know, she was very true and very extreme. And for a long time, I don't even know what the scoby was. <laughs> very ahead of her time to be she brewing was. kombucha in the eighties. Well, she, I think it was. I, I mentioned the Catholic because I think it was a woman from parish who who gave her her first the scoby. mother or whatever scoby scooby. I didn't even know what to call it then. It was just like it's scoby, but it's terrifying. What's in the corner of the of the room, none of us t- talked about it. <laughs> Just like this thing. Oh, Did you know also we went to the same primary school? Get out. Sacred Heart Primary School. In Sandringham. Sandringham. High five. A tiny, tiny. Like oh people God, must be five. so bored by that. <laughs> so excited. People would be so bored by that no, fact. No, no. But it's a tiny, tiny Catholic primary school in Melbourne. You guys. And when I read it in your book, Michelle yeah. was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway, let us get into the show. I'm oh, no, sorry. I'm just in shock because we are practically alumni. But there wow. was, there, I went back there recently and I love a school that has a good community feeling. And uh, yeah. 
I'm glad that we have that in common. <laughs> I'm already the favourite. Speak favorite. freely. <laughs> Claire, Damn we it. start every show with, in the same way, which is to ask, what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to someone listening? My sister gave me Dark Emu recently. and What's I've that? also It's a wonderful book. It's about the untold tradition of Indigenous Australians. I'm about three pages in, so I'm no expert, but it's a book that my sister gave me and it's by, it's a learned gentleman called Bruce Pascoe, who's written a number of other books. Um, and it's about the complex and civilised system of organisation that Indigenous Australians have always had. It's kind of an untold story, you know, We and it, it's actually completely fascinating. So there's that on my list, that sitting there is something that I can learn from and something that I'm excited about reading. But really, beyond that, I'm literally watching like Morning Wars, you know, that new TV show. Yes. With, with what do you think? There's a few mixed reviews around. There are. I just really, I'm like sitting there going, yeah, <laughs> good on you, Reese. Her name isn't Reese. Isn't no, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to remember. Is it, it's, is it Bradley or something? Bradley. Yes. That's it. Bradley. And the first episode's quite interesting. Like it's, it's gripping in terms of being dramatic. I can't really be bothered deriving much more meaning from it than that. I understand. If you can look at it as entertainment with, you know, it's a little preachy is the truth of it, but it has some interesting ideals and interesting storylines. We live in a time where here in Australian media we've just had our first double female morning show, Bill, break up. And I think it's interesting that this show is out at this time. It gives us food for discussion. Claire, in every In Conversation interview, our second question is also the same, and that is, what is your childhood like? Your childhood was particularly difficult because your sister, Rowie, passed away when you were very young. Okay, so to put this in context, um, I'm one of five, as you know, we were brought up in a, in, a, in a pretty loving, pretty bohemian, pretty fun and pretty normal family. One of five, I'm the youngest 18 months apart. We grew up by the seaside um, and by the time I was three, um, all of my siblings were at school and um, something unusual happened in our family, which is that Rowena, who was two years older than me, got unwell and none of us knew why. And it was a really difficult time. And, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is so I could come to peace with that part of my history and to honour her and honour her life because it was short. Um, she was admitted into the children's hospital after six months of confused diagnosis. Nobody knew what was wrong. And when she was there, she was put on life support and um, she lived there for two years. But before that, our life was pretty stock standard. You know, we had a dog called Sam and we ran up and down the street in Sandy in our bare feet looking for each other. And I shared a room with Rowie and my parents were good people and... You know, life was, like I said, it was pretty normal. But once um, what happened with Rowena happened, there really was no normal again. There was a new kind of normal. I don't know anyone who's experienced grief or trauma to that degree. And these are words that I didn't even have for so many years. I didn't know what to call that experience. Um, You'll understand what I'm talking about. You are forever from that point onwards looking for places to put your love. Mm. Rowena passed away when you were five. She was six, seven? She was seven, yeah. Seven? Yeah. What? I'm, one thing that really stood out to me when I read the book is your recollection of the day that Rowena passed away. Is that unusual to think back to? Does it feel like another person had those memories or that there's some distance, I guess, between that experience and now? 
So again, the, these things took years for me to, to know how to write about, which is why probably there was such a big gap between me saying I was going to write the book that I wrote at 21 and then <laughs> I'm actually writing it when I was, I said I wasn't going to write it till I was really effing old, <laughs> like 40. So that was my, that was what I said. Ancient. Yeah, so over the hill. So I guess we don't talk very much we don't know very much about the way grief is processed in children's brains because so many of us go through it and then just never want to talk about it again because that feeling of that feeling of grief it's all mushed up it's a barnacle it's an entanglement of all your love and this terrible bad feeling and as children we are stuck in this period of time that psychologist Jean Piaget called the age of magical thinking we're forming identity and the line between us and our reality outside is really thin so we're picking up the feelings and emotions of our, of our you know, adults around us, but we don't have words to express it yet. You know, I, I remember clearly because I knew I had to remember because I always knew she was going to die and I didn't know what that meant. And I remember watching so keenly um, how my parents, I didn't see them cry, I saw them praying actually, and their faith, you know, my parents and I have had quite different faiths, but their faith was a structure that held us together and I remember how, you know, and this is unusual too, I remember the sights and the smells and the, the colours and the tastes and the textures. And one of the reasons food became so important to me was because it would help me attach back really quickly to my time with Rowena growing up around her bed. I don't know if it's just a quirk that I have the memory that I have, but, but there it is. Well, it's a pretty helpful skill to have if you're writing a memoir about your life. One thing we do really want to touch on with you is, of course, diet culture and how that affected you as a young girl because the war against your body was a very prominent theme in the book, wasn't it? In my era, sizes of dresses stopped at like 12, 14. And I was always bigger than that from the very beginning, you know, from the beginning of becoming a woman. So I think we need to talk more about why we diet the way we do. I've taken some time to explain this in the book because I understand why we go on diets. They're a metaphor for hope. We think that when we're thin, we're going to matter. And I've heard you guys talking about this on your show too. I had that story very clearly and I had it for a reason. When I was 10 years old, I went on my first diet mm. and I had an incredible experience of leaving school in grade four as the chubby kid, coming back in grade five as the thin, tall kid. Mm. And my whole life changed. In my era, you didn't, you know, this is 20 years back, we, we didn't have any context to speak about eating disorders as being things that aren't related to our size. Mm. We didn't think about them as mental ill health, you know, unless you were one eating disorder, which was anorexia. So I think for many of us, we swing between all extremes of the spectrum um, and it takes a really long time to accept our piano accordion bodies, you know, the way they wax and wane. I wanted to go back to Rowena for a second because I know in the book you explained how watching her fade away was one of the first times when you were quite young that you started to really notice your body and your size and things like that. Can you talk us through that and then that first visit to the diet doctor that you just touched on in grade four? So it wasn't so much me realising my body was big, it was me being told by the world around me that my body was big. When I was three years old, I was at kinder and it was around the time that Rowie became unwell. And part of her unwellness was that she she had a lot of difficulty, you know, she, she had a lot of difficulty eating and it was difficult for, you know, she was becoming quite small and quite frail. And for me, I started to pick up a message then about our body size and health. I was always quite 
quite Germanic, actually Dutch, in my body size. I was the biggest in my family in terms of, you know, if you looked at the percentile chart. And I was strong and I was a happy, jiggly kid, you know. And I, I look, there's a photo on the front cover of the book of me in my bathers. I love that photo. <laughs> so and that's good. me. You know, I'd have these moments of feeling very confident and strong and happy in my body. My, my body was so much fun. I loved waking up to my soft body in the morning and I loved swimming with it. But at Kinder one day, a guy that I liked called Jimmy, who I used to write original love songs for, Mm-hmm. Every day, uh, I always liked a bit of singing. He told me to go away because I was too big and girls weren't meant to be so big. And I realised, you know, it sort of stuck inside me like a shard of glass where I went, oh God, am I? I, I knew I was big, mm-hmm. but I didn't know I was too big. You know, we live in a world that tells us consistently that as long as we stay small and keep our feelings to ourselves and don't age, we'll be fine. How does that message, no one's, you know, coming out and saying that on the stage, tap dancing it, but that's the message we get from the world around us, from the society that in my childhood there were no fat Miss Worlds, there were no fat newsreaders. I was fat and I was, you know, that's a a description of my body size, which made perfect sense. Like I was tall and my body was was fat. I got the message really clearly that that was wrong. That continued on. I saw no one around me in places of success in the popular world, in the magazines, anywhere else, where they were big. We didn't have an Ashley Graham in my era. We had Miss Piggy, who was awesome. She had a lot of guts. (laughs) (laughs) But what I realised was that big bodies were comic bodies. I realised there was was a cartoon called Fat Albert. There was Chunk from the uh, the Goonies. There was a marshmallow, (laughs) the puffed man, you know, in, um, in Ghostbusters. So big was equated with comedy. You pick that up and you run with it. You get currency wherever you can, you know. So I became the tap dancing comic to avoid the teasing of the boys at school. In my school nickname, I say that about the fanciest title you're going to hear in my book. It's not a rock and roll memoir. I leave that to Keith Jarrett. He does that really well. This is a book about the stories we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them. And picking up those stories from society, the one nickname that I had in childhood was Fatty Boomba. Now, it's a little bit funny and a little bit sad. And I felt both of those things and I thought, how do I work with this? Because we're really smart when we're kids. My brain was like every other kid brain. I'm like, how do I fit in? I've been incredibly small and fat. And I know from my experience how the world treats us at different stages. I don't know that anyone has the right to comment on our body and equate it with being a champion or otherwise but at the moment we're quite obsessed with the hero's journey of fat to thin Mm. and that existed in my time too and it was clear in me because I lived it by the age of 10 I was sick of the teasing and I went to my mum and I said I'm done I'd heard about these things called diets I'd even maybe tried one a couple of years back which is quite young but not unusual so this is why I tell this story Um, because I know many of you have experienced exactly the same thing this is a common common untold story Mm. I went to the diet doctor Um, He pointed to a chart and on that chart he weighed me, he measured me, he pointed to the chart of where I was and he said, Claire, you are here, you're obese. And I didn't know what that meant but I knew it was no good. It was difficult for me to be there because my mother had always told me it was my insides that count, not my outsides. And I had begged her to, to go to this diet doctor and there was a part of her that thought it was the right thing to do too because she saw how society treated us women who were bigger. So there I go, I'm off to the diet doctor, he says, I call him Dr. Von Thinberger (laughs) in the book, which is not terribly far from his actual name. And I do that because 
I think he, like all the other doctors at the time, was trying to do the right thing. But this was an extreme diet on a young body that was growing. I didn't know at that stage what I know now, that in puberty, girls' bodies have to gain some weight. Otherwise, we don't trigger the cascade of hormones that allows us to get our first periods and become, you know, reproductive women in the world, right? <laughs> Ready for babies. Nothing, <laughs> you know. There we go. So it became a push-pull for me because I showed up. Then grade five, I had a new uniform. I was tall and thin, thin. And for the first time in my life, one of my, my one of my friends' mums said to me, "You're actually quite beautiful." And other mothers asked for my diet to be photocopied. And look, I don't judge these women. They were in a in a world in a context where it was very hard to get power as a woman, and through our body size was one of the ways we did it. But it kept us locked in a cage. I picked up that story and I ran with it. I took that story into me saying, if I keep small, I'll be okay. And it set me on a wild roller coaster ride of all sorts of crazy diets, which I just kept secret because I didn't want anyone to know. When you said before you were touched on your mum, the women around you, even your doctor, and there was this real sense in that story that you think everybody did genuinely mean well, like no one meant any ill will. Do you think it's because maybe back then, and to be honest, probably still now, that we equate being thin with being healthy and they thought it was just a health thing? I can't really speak for them, um, but I think the world has a story about our body size and we didn't know in that era that we have a choice around it. We didn't have a framework that we have now like Linda Bacon's Health at Every Size. We didn't have uh, nutritionists like Ellen Satter giving us frameworks for healthy eating for children. Now there are all these resources available, but we didn't have role models in um, around that. And I, I think genuinely when we get confused when we talk about weight and health, and it's a really easy mistake to make, and this is sort of made evident by the fact that, you know, many years later after my diet worked so well that I forgot how to eat at all, I forgot how to sleep, I forgot how to function, I had what is commonly termed my one and only genuine nervous breakdown, genuine authentic nervous breakdown at 21 in London, which I didn't see coming, um, off the back of some pretty extreme dieting, which I was secretly doing because I thought I had to keep myself small or get small in order to have a go at making my living, making music. You don't, girls, by the way. It doesn't really matter what size you are in terms of making music and many other things. But when I would... When I came back home, towel between legs, barely able to function in the world and had to learn how to recover from an acute period of anxiety, my one and only acute period of anxiety because I learned how to recover, I will go out to the, to the um, shops down at Sandy and God bless, everyone would say, my gosh, you look so well, you know, welcome home, you look so healthy, you look fantastic, you must have had the best time. I was at my sickest. This is not an uncommon story. I've heard other friends who have cancer who are told that they look they're best when they're thin. I've had other friends who have acute eating disorders who've been told the same. I think there's probably a lesson to be taken away here, ladies, which is let's not make assumptions about people and their mental health and their state by their size. Let's ask people, how you doing? You know, good to see you. Like if we can stop commenting on people's sizes and actually have an understanding that, that a certain size doesn't necessarily equate a certain level of happiness, I think we're making some progress. Coming up after the break, how you pen your deepest, darkest thoughts on paper for the world to see. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. 
One theme that really did stand out to me when you were going through that very, very dark period in your early 20s and you did have that nervous breakdown was how much shame played a role in continuing on the eating disorder behaviour and also probably meant that you were secretive about your mental illness and you didn't reach out and try and find support. Did you feel that shame at the time that it was so shameful to be eating the ways you were? Look, it wasn't just about eating. It was really about the thinking that I had. I had some stories that were um, really perpetuating this survival mentality that I'd carried with me all my life. So I just want to make a couple of points here. Number one, (laughs) it is completely possible to recover from all of the things we've mentioned here. And recovery to me means it doesn't mean that the, the voice of anxiety goes away. It means that we develop playful ways to talk back to it. And for me, that was central to my recovery and it is the entire reason I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. I promised myself at 21 that if I did recover, I would write this book and I would, I would speak about you know, how I recovered. And that gave me enough hope to start my recovery. I found a wonderful book called Self-Help Be Nerves by Dr. Claire Weeks and I found a way of talking to my inner critic that allowed me to be more playful and get on with my big fat dreams in the world slowly, slowly, slowly. But I mentioned that because one of the stories we have around mental health is that it makes us somehow other. I doubt there's a human being listening who will not at some point in their life experience some suffering. Mental ill health can seem like a scary kind of umbrella title for lots of feelings that we feel. I can look back now with all these decades between then and now and understand that my mental ill health or my experiences of acute dieting or extreme thinking, that the shaking that I had, the insomnia, all of those symptoms of panic, I didn't know what the hell they were. I thought they meant I was going nuts. I thought they meant that I you know, had no chance in the world. Again, it's just not so. We have a clever, clever brain. We have a lower brain that tries to tell us when we're in danger. And sometimes it does that in really aggressive ways. <laughs> And for me, that aggressive voice, you know, that voice of self-doubt, which I would later call Frank, I didn't realise that I have a higher brain too and that I can tell that voice of self-doubt to go and sit in the corner, please, because we've got work to do. Now, that took practice, but I I focus on that because my – you asked about shame and the the, the thing that got in the way the most of my recovery was shame, was fear of fear. As soon as I got into um, understanding that – my, my body was actually protecting me. My lower brain was protecting me. It was, had just gone a bit rogue. You know, those anxious thoughts were, I didn't make them up. You know, they're there to try and give me the hormones to keep me safe in this, what was quite a tricky environment in London. Um, as soon as I worked that out, that my brain was on my side, my recovery began. And then I started working with a therapist later where I could go back and understand my experience as a child. But when you're in an acute period or when you're having a panic attack, it's good to know you're having a panic attack because then you can do something about it. Mm. But my um, fearful thoughts, my shaking body, my inability to eat, all of those classic symptoms of anxiety, I just didn't have a term for them. And as soon as I did, I was on my way. Mm. One of the things that struck both of us um, with the book was... Is this the most intense shameless you have oh, ever no, had? No, hardly. <laughs> we, can be, we can be intense when we want to be. I love it. No, but look, it, this is... I appreciate it. All very it. important topics. And we, don't, like, we wanted to talk about all of this with you so desperately after reading your book that we didn't want to waste. <laughs> no, and also I don't I think we have it. these conversations enough, particularly we don't. Agreed. Oh, no, um, no, not sorry, not you guys, no, no, but no, I no, mean as a society. No, genu- genuinely. We're really scared to have this conversation. I can yeah. just sort of say like hand on heart, anxiety is nothing to be afraid of. Mm. In fact, recovery just completely lies in us being able to be slightly more playful with it. Like, oh, look, 
there goes my crazy little brain again bibbling off about all the things that are going to be wrong well that's what <laughs> I liked about <laughs> that's what I liked about you calling that voice in your head Frank in yes. that it, it was a playful way to talk about I have anxiety and I've discussed on the podcast many times about having anxiety as well that's such a good way to kind of point to it and be like this is a ridiculous thought and I can make fun of it and I can yeah. be light-hearted about it because yeah. it helps it it makes it easier to process I don't know if you had this too but I had a thought for much of my recovery and again it took me years to speak about this I kept mm. trying to write this story and then just went oh no I'm not going to get you know the voice was still there I thought my recovery depended on me never having those thoughts again Mm. I did not realize that actually they're just normal natural functions of a healthy brain in a society where constantly agitating now nervous systems constantly agitated and it's you know, it's a, we can be recovered and still be having these thoughts. You know, it's actually okay. It's a normal, natural part of living an adventurous life. I think that was one of the main lessons that I took. I still see my psychologist, but probably me the too. biggest lesson she gave me, even though now I'd consider myself as someone who's quite high-functioning despite having anxiety, is that, is that this is normal and you can deal with it and you don't need it to go away. You can just learn how to process it and manage it. Now, not to glamorise mental health in any way, shape or form, it's the antithesis of that, but I said before that sometimes we notice in research that the comic brain, the creative brain, the anxious brain, the high-achieving brain are related in some way. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I'll leave it to scientists to, to, to and neuroscientists to, to explain that more thoroughly because we don't really know the answers yet. We just know that a lot of the symptoms of mental ill health and a lot of the symptoms of brilliance seem to coalesce or in some way there's some entwinement there I think that's that's okay you know I think that's okay maybe we I think it's about harnessing it it's about harnessing that side of you and figuring out how to live a balanced life around it as much as physically possible but harnessing it and realizing because I agree it's not to glamorize anxiety but there are aspects of my anxiety that make me a perfectionist or make me passionate so it's a tricky well, maybe line to walk. it's just that there are aspects of your brain that, that you know, that maybe we're all a bit push-pull. Like mm. maybe we're all um, – if we think of – I think of my um, mental ill health or mental health as a kind of a weather pattern. And, you know, I think when you're in an experience of acute mental ill health, when you – excuse my, my rumbling stomach there. <laughs> um, I think what can happen is the story that we tell ourselves is that this is – it's always going to be like this and it's never going to go away. A lot of freedom and hope has been found for me where I'm able to go, no, actually, no, you know, and actually <laughs> this is just a part of my apparat- apparatus. This is a part of my particular weather system. You will have yours and you will have yours. But the truth is, you know, when we can learn to understand our weather system – and for me – what helped with that was a lot of um, what we would now call mindfulness, but then was, you know, the stories of writers like Jack Cornfield or Stephanie Dowrick or Caroline Jones. Go and have a look at them because they're sort of some of the original, the OG of mindfulness here in, in the world that we live in now. Once I hooked in there, I, I found some relief. What I find interesting is I imagine there are so many young women listening to this thinking, okay, I have issues around my body, I don't know how to resolve them. How do you, and what was your, and I hate to use the word journey, but like what was that Go process, on. what <laughs> was that journey like <laughs> getting to a point where 
you have peace with your body beyond just accepting messages of accepting it. Because you know that's like the overwhelming and overriding sense. It's like, oh, let's just accept and embrace ourselves. How did you do that beyond just accepting those messages blindly? Well, it depends which day you catch me on, to be honest, you know. And again, I think this sort of – we all have complicated stories about our bodies. All of us. We all have complex stories with our bodies. It's like any other relationship. Who marries, right, and goes, every single day I wake up and the sun shines out of his eyes and I just feel so ravenous when I see him. <laughs> it's just not realistic, right? So, Damn it. Is that not what marriage is? <laughs> Rats. I mean, my marriage is like that. Hi, Marty. <laughs> Sorry, suckers. Um, so if we put it in a realistic context – it, what's the time of the month, you know, what what sort of, how, how much self-care have I applied on this particular week or month or day? Have I just given birth? Am I about to give birth? Am I grieving and I'm turning to food for comfort? Is that okay? Is that not okay? I've accepted that my body, again, is like a piano accordion that wants to sing its little song. And I work very hard at being kind to myself regardless of my body size. But I live in a world where it's still difficult. You know, online shopping is the the miracle that women like me were looking for. But for dozens of years of my life, I couldn't find a pair of bathers that fit me. You know, the world is constantly reminding me that my body size is perhaps a little um, other. And I'm not, again, you know, I understand what it is to manufacture clothing and to run a business. It's you know I would love to dictate to the world that we have all sizes in clothing but you know that's I don't don't get to do that because I don't I'm not God so Mm -hmm. I understand that that's not always possible. Do you find sometimes when you want to have these conversations that they can be hijacked by people who want to conflate weight with health so I know when we've had conversations people are like well let's not glamorize obesity what would you say to those people and do you find that they have tried to hijack a conversation that you've tried to have around body image and things like that? No. One of the most difficult things about living in the world that we live in now is we have forgotten the art of civil debate and civil conversation. And for me, I think that is the way forward. So to be honest, I don't generally attract that level of shallow discourse because I just block and delete if anyone comes to me with that. I mean, it's, you know, if you're not in the arena, don't, don't come chatting to me. If, you're not, if you haven't done your research, it, it's, it's not – and I'm not here actually to debate. I'm not here to say – this is a healthy body size or not a healthy body size. I'm speaking my story from within a body that has changed and I'm reflecting back how society treats me differently at different sizes of that scale. And the most important point is what I'm saying is I don't give a shit. I get to talk to myself any way that I like. It is not my fault that I have a story in my head that I've done something wrong when I'm bigger. It is my responsibility, however, and my example to set in the world for my 16-year-old daughter who does not experience these, these you know, um, troubles that I had at her age but will have her own stories to, to battle. It's my responsibility to say that I have the right to self-determine. I have the right to, to concentrate on the, you know, the pleasure and the love and the goodness and the kindness that my body can bring when it's on stage when it's, you know, when it's in the middle of love and rapture, when it's giving birth, when it's walking down the street. One of the difficult things is when we feel our body is too big, we count ourselves out of the pleasure of moving it. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle where we think that we're too embarrassed to get out in our walking gear and our sports gear. We think we can't run as fast as everyone else or we're embarrassed to be at the pool. And a lot of my, I think the useful stuff of my journey is Find role models. Find role models. Like this is the day in the age where you can find role models of women like myself, 
like so many others, you know, here in Australia who are just who they are in the world and we're not going to count ourselves out because of the size of our body or because of our age or because of who you tell us we should be because that's just fucking boring. I mean, it really, really is. So to answer your question, if some boring person wants to come and have a <laughs> pick a fight with me, they're welcome, you know, but they're having it... <laughs> They're having it in silence. You know, it's not a particularly interesting part of the conversation. Claire, one thing that stood out to me when I was reading your magnificent book is that a lot of what you shared is deeply personal and some of it, I'm guessing, would be even traumatic to revisit all these years <laughs> later. I do wonder, when you were writing about uh, not only your thoughts on your own body... Do you hear how nervously I laugh? I'm like, <laughs> I was remembering, like, the experience of being in my pyjamas for three weeks and my girlfriend, Jamila Rizvi, coming over with snacks and treats <laughs> and going, here we go, up we get. That's right. <laughs> well, one thing that stood out, because you do talk very, very openly and honestly and vulnerably about uh, mental illness and your body and a whole host of things that you navigated in your early 20s. This book is funnier than we're making it out to be, you guys, by the way. It is funny as well. Did you have to warn the people in your life, the people that you love about what might be contained in this book? Because we can be really close with people and not know the gravity of what they're going through. Was this difficult for your... Yeah, or thinking. Was this difficult for even your husband, who I know came along a little bit after... The nervous breakdown period, but also nervous your parents. Breakthrough. Hey, nervous that's breakthrough. what my therapist Great. told me to call it. I love that. But yeah, he he met me in my glory, golden glory, um, a couple of years later. I was still having nervous thoughts then and anxious thoughts, but I was well into recovery. I was in stepping into my world as a musician, and he was my sound producer, my drummer. And it's, I didn't, I didn't need to, I didn't tell him about these things until he closer to our romantic get together. I don't want to spoil the story. We won't guys. spoil no, that no, part because it's very uplifting and nice. Yes. But they end up but married <laughs> and they have children too. Yeah, we have <laughs> heaps of kids. <laughs> Not before. Um, anyway, but, um, much to be told there. But I bring that up because he knew because I was writing songs by then. You know, I was telling, finding a way to tell my truth, my truth, my way was incredibly important to my recovery and we all have different ways we can do that. We can dance it, we can swim it, we can corporate meeting it, we can do whatever, we can dot point it. I mean, if corporate meeting is your thing, sure. (laughs) (laughs) However it is that we express ourselves, right? Yes, these are shared stories. Talking about your childhood is difficult and it's, like I said, it's a shared story and it's a story, you know, we we are a family who lost one of our beloveds and to honour her as we talk about, you know, her limitations as I talked about it and to... You know, it's difficult to bring this up again. My family are incredibly generous to allow me to tell this story. I couldn't have told it without their permission. In fact, at one point, you know, I thought I can't tell this story at all. I, I, I gave it a draft to mum, good old Maria, Mariana, the Dutch treat, and I gave her a pack of post-it notes. And I said, mum, you know, I'd been sort of saying for years that I wanted to write this story and they knew why because in my darkness – the hopeful thought was, I'll one day recover, I'll be an old lady at 40 and I'll have something hopeful to say and that helped me lift and she was the one who said to me, you will use all of this one day. Anyone in the public eye knows that do, you want more than anything, if you love your family, you want to protect them. I wanted to wait till my children were older to tell this story and ask their permission to tell it and, and get their blessing. So I give my mum the draft, I give her some post-it notes, I say, mum, if there's anything in there that's not right, mark it and we can talk about it. It was all very difficult actually um, because I wanted to get it right and I wasn't sure I did. I come back a couple of years, a couple of years, a couple of days later and I, you know, I was fully prepared, I thought, for what I was going to need to talk about. Well, there were 100 and 
79 or something, post-it notes sticking out in all different colours, and I tell you what, my stomach dropped to the floor and I went, oh, my God, you know, what, you know, what, what could I have done that was so wrong? Anyway, it turns out my mother's a really excellent line editor and she picked up <laughs> all the commas and all the capitals. <laughs> and That's amazing. So it was, very, oh you know, it was really helpful. So there were some points where, you know, there are – I've told this story in the most useful way that, that I can. There will all be, always be parts of it that were just too long to, to be in here and that's okay. Um, but I had to do it with their blessing. I couldn't do it without it. It's a very unusual situation to be in when you are sharing other people's stories, right? And I don't think it's one that many people grapple with. But I know Zara and I this year in particular, it's been a lesson that when you're sharing something publicly, you have to be so diligent with what you choose to put out into the world. With your children, was that a conversation that you had recently or was this kind of evolving well, I've always been really um, very open with my kids. You know, I learnt from my best mate, Deefer, about the advantages of being open. Um, and I I just think we are a family who talk a lot and we can ask any question, no questions off limits. And also um, they know that mum and dad aren't always right, just most of the time, but, you know, not always. <laughs> so I guess it was... I just, you know, that those our darling kids, they're not exempt. They're doing Smiling Mind already at school. They understand what anxious thoughts are. And to be able to tell them that they're not alone, that I've, uh, I experienced these things too, it's is quite helpful. It's incredible yeah. gift. It's pretty incredible. Well, I'd like to have that from your mum. Thanks, babes. I, think, I'll, I'll I make just sure feel to tell like that. that. I feel <laughs> like that would be pretty incredible to be able to read through that and be able to see that how my own parent dealt with something like that would be very helpful. My uh, my daughter's um, in the process of having a little read now. I think the boys are a couple of years off perhaps. <laughs> so you go through all of this and you become wildly famous Hardly. and very successful Come too. On. But something funny happens I think when people become famous in that we sort of flatten people or make them a little one-dimensional. I, I don't think I was ever famous enough for that. But, do you <laughs> think, but was there ever an element of, hey, <laughs> there is so much more context and background to me that the world doesn't know that I want to inform them about? Or was that not a motivating factor at all? The motivating factor for me was really um, I've got something useful to share and it makes me feel alive when my work allows me to do that. So that was highly motivating. Again, this is not the story of the accolades or anything you know terribly um, unusual that happened. This is a really common story. We've got dreams. What are the ways we count ourselves out? What is our nexus of control and how can we uh, move into that space? So in a way, it was an extension of everything I've tried to do through my love project, Big Heart of Business, through my radio show, offspring that was just pure pleasure that was something else but you know through songs I guess I would love to be someone who could write a pure pop song kick it off into the world and sit back and you know have no care about the values of it but it's not how I'm wired I'm wired and was wired from a young age to want to do something with my life and I'm wired with a restlessness about how I do that so for me this is a satisfying project because I know I get to tell a true story (laughs) being flattened no I mean like I said, I really don't – I think we cultivate different types of fame. So if the fame that I had cultivated was about someone that I'm not, we would have been in trouble. But I'm probably most famous for my hashtag Claire Bear Overshare, you know. Like, <laughs> so so I think – It's pe- on brand. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think people kind of have an idea of what they're getting with me in a way. So there was never much to hide. This is a story I haven't told in its fullness before. I was slightly worried about how I might be judged or otherwise. But I'll cop that. If I can tell the story. Yeah, if I can keep doing this kind of work in the world. How have you felt about the reception since it came out into the world? What a surprise. Yeah. Seriously. What a surprise. It went, um, 
can't really talk about it without bragging, guys. <laughs> Brag. Brag away. Look, this book, I have been thrilled with the response because what I'm getting in my DMs every day are, frankly, hundreds of messages from people um, who have had similar experiences. So I feel less alone in it. It was a surprise that it went national top 10 in its mm-hmm. first week. I mean, what's I, no one's expecting that. And that's really got a lot to do with the the wonderful work of the team at Allen and Unwin and everyone who's put it in there and all the word of mouth. But i got to say, it's it's quite a surprise and it's a lovely surprise. And what a lovely message to share in the mainstream as well. For <laughs> to go so big is great because, as you said, it's a common story but not one that we talk about a lot. It's so well, funny when <laughs> things go right. Like I yeah, went to the airport <laughs> and, the, and, and in Perth and it was a day and I'd been noticing my book in – in airports. Now, this for me is a dream come true. I've always thought you really made it when your book's in an airport, right? So I was secretly sneaking, you know, signatures into the books <laughs> at the airport, special messages all over Australia. So I've been on tour. I've been on this incredible tour with some incredible women um, having conversations in each city. And that's nearly over. But there we go. We're at Perth. I show up. There is a massive bunch of balloons. And I walk past it with my publicist and Isabel, my mate. And I keep walking, I'm like thinking to myself, isn't that beautiful? Someone's got some balloons and they've got my initials on them. That's so funny. Um, I wonder who that is. I kept walking and Isabel went, Claire, the, the, come back, the balloons are for you. <laughs> <laughs> to have someone meet you with balloons and a champagne, you know, it, who, a lovely person from Allen and Unwin in Perth. It's just beautiful because it means we're celebrating the possibility that this story is being told in people's heads and hearts. I want people to know that we can change the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. It's a really interesting lead into our final question, which is what does success look like to you with all of that in mind? I knew this question was coming (laughs) and I've completely forgotten my brilliant answer. (laughs) Success feels like I have something still to give and that there's something I'm still excited about. For me, success is when I've had an idea, an inkling of somewhere where I could be useful or something that will be exciting to do and then I do it and it is, you know, and that can apply to me for everything from literally from bread baking at home with a Julia from Ostro recipe or a Rhonda Hetzel, you know, jam making recipe to things like this to writing a book. So I reckon that's probably success for me. That's a beautiful answer. I absolutely love that. Claire, thank you so, so much for sitting down with us. This has been such an insightful chat and a deep one, but I love deep and meaningful chats. So so we've really appreciated it. Oh, my God, gals. And just for context for the listeners, Claire's going on to conversations with Richard Feidler after this, so we imagine this was much stronger interview. This was probably a waste of your time. No. <laughs> it has been. Can I just say thank you for the work that you do? I'm sorry to, but I do want to thank you for the work that you're doing. You have galvanised something for a whole lot of us. We are pretty fun women who are also imperfect women, and we want to have these conversations. So, I'm. So, you know, look, let's all hug it out. <laughs> Go and have a drink. I'll hand five it out so I don't have to hug it. But I really, really appreciate being here. It's a real honour. Thank you. Well, thank you for the book. It was a wonder to read as well. Anytime, babes. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Claire Bowditch. If you'd love to hear more from Claire, you can do two things. You can buy her book, Your Own Kind of Girl, or you can follow her on Instagram at 
Claire Bowditch. As for us, as always, we are at Shameless Podcast. Thank you so much too to Brisbane for coming out for our first Brisbane live show last night, presented by ANZ, who are committed to helping Australians get on top of their money, and of course, The Body Shop, who are fighting for a fairer and more beautiful world this Christmas, with a donation from every single purchase going to Plan International, the global children's charity striving to achieve quality for girls. It was such a brilliant night, and we cannot wait to do it all again in Sydney tomorrow. Oh, and yes, if you're wondering, we are recording this on the road this week, so a big shout out to Airbnb for our Brisbane accommodation for our pleasure trip. Yep, that's business and leisure because we're doing a lot of business and not that much leisure. We will see you guys on Monday. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.